Well, how are we doing, Biltmore? Doing all right? Man, it is, it is good to be here. I want to thank Pastor Bruce, by the way. I know that you think he's just like your pastor and you get used to him, but I hope you know the gift that you have that is your senior pastor. Amen? Can we give him a, a hand clap? I met him, like you said, out on the golf course, and he's a better golfer than me. That's just true. And then we talked about compassion, and you guys started sponsoring kids. And I don't know if you know this. Do you know that y'all set, the, set like the single-day sponsorship record in the history of compassion? You did. You know how I know it? You know who's the record you beat? Mine. So he's a, not only that, he's a better golfer, he's a better leader than I am. And uh, I listened to him preach, and he's a better preacher than me, too. So I think the reason that he brought me here today is so that you would be more appreciative of what you have week after week. Uh, but I really do... Thank you for letting us come in. My wife and I are here, and man, we've been over at the Biltmore. That is a fancy double wide there. Good <laughs> gracious. I grew up in a little town called Dillon, South Carolina. We don't have that kind of stuff where I'm from. Uh, if you don't know where Dillon is, anybody know where Dillon is? Anybody? Okay, look at you. All right, you got out too. Praise God. It's, uh, in case you don't know, it's a truck stop on the way to Myrtle Beach, the Redneck Riviera, and um, my daddy said the best thing ever come out of Dillon is I-95, and that's a fact. It is uh, the land of the mullet and the wide tire Camaro and moon pies and stuff like that. And so, um, but I have, I have a lot to be thankful for being from there. Um, I, got, I got saved at a little Baptist camp just outside of Dillon. And, um, and in fact, not only did I meet Jesus there, uh, I also, that's where I preached my very first sermon. And I don't know, any of you grow up like going to youth camp? Anybody here do the youth camp thing? Just a few of you. God bless you if you didn't. <laughs> um, in fact, the, the, the very first sermon I ever preached, uh, at that point I was on staff at the, that camp, which means I just cut the grass and stuff. And my football coach who led me to the Lord while we were, during the, we were singing, and, and this was before worship like this. This is before like Chris Tomlin invented worship. We were singing, we were singing, I am a C. Anybody know that song? I am a C, I'm a C-H, I'm a C-H-R-E-S-T-I-N. All right, that's how it went. Now, I'm from Dillon, so I was in the 11th grade before I realized we were spelling Christian. I didn't know what we were doing. I thought somebody had caught tongues and we were going to get in trouble with the deacons here at the camp. And so the guy's up there singing, I'm a C, and Coach Lee leans over to me and says, Joby Martin, when the singing's done, boy, you're going to preach. I was like, like in two minutes? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, Coach, um, I'm not real comfortable speaking in front of people. And he said, boy, did you say comfortable? I was like, uh, yes, sir. He goes, you think Daniel was comfortable in the lion's den. Boy, do you think Paul and Silas were comfortable in prison? Boy, do you think Jesus Christ was comfortable on the cross? I don't think he was. No, sir. I don't. And I said, well, what do I talk about? He said, boy, that's easy. You talk about Jesus, you talk about 30 minutes. Go. And so that's what I've been doing ever since then. I've been talking about Jesus, and for the next 30 minutes, that's what we're going to talk about. Amen? And so... Um, <clears throat> So God called me into ministry, and, and like Pastor said, I planted a church, me and a bunch of friends of mine, in 2012, and we, we renovated an old Walmart. That's what we did. And uh, so I preached from ladies' accessories, typically every Sunday. And I called my daddy. He said, Daddy, we're going to put the church in a Walmart. He said, Boy, I always thought you'd work at Walmart. So I offered him a job as a greeter. So that's a little bit about me. If you got your Bibles, I hope you do. Will you go to Romans chapter 3? If you didn't bring one, you can get your phone out and turn it on and scroll to Romans chapter 3, and we are just going to talk about the gospel. Now, if you, 
If you're a Christian, you may be thinking, I know you don't think this because this is a gospel-centered, gospel-driven church. And, and, and I know that you know that the gospel is not like the ABCs of Christianity, it's the A to Z. The, the gospel is not like the shallow end of the pool, it's the diving board and everything. It's not just the starter of the engine, but it is the bumper-to-bumper coverage and what it means to be a follower of Jesus. In fact, in most of the epistles, all except, I think, Galatians, Paul will start his epistles by saying, let me remind you, brothers, of the gospel. And so for some of you, this may just be a reminder of the good news of Jesus Christ. And maybe there are some of you here, and though you've heard the gospel preached over and over and over, maybe today would be the day that it makes sense to you for the very first time. Gospel simply means good news, and good news enters into bad places, which is where Paul starts in Romans chapter three, that he is going to start with the diagnosis. Romans chapter three, verse 10 says this, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongue to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their path are ruin and misery, the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. In other words, what Paul is saying here is that every single one of us, by nature and nurture, are not mistakers that need to make better decisions with our lives. But every single one of us, by nature and nurture, are wretched, wretched, crooked, and depraved sinners. That the heart of the problem is that you and I have a problem in our heart. Now, the younger you are, the more likely you are to be offended by that statement. So let me just say this, I'm like the mailman. I don't write it, I just deliver it. And I know there's some of you here that are like, wait a minute, who do you think you are to call me a sinner? Because my kindergarten teacher told me that I'm a rainbow and I'm a snowflake and I'm a Skittle. (laughs) All right, Skittle, your kindergarten teacher lied to you, okay? You're not. I mean, deep down in every single one of us, we are all just a bunch of little idol-worshiping, egomaniacal sinners. All of us, we're born like the seagulls in Nemo, just crying, mine, 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 mine. Don't believe me? Think about this. Anybody here ever raise a toddler? You ever grow a toddler at your house? All right, do you remember that moment where you had to teach them to sin? Do you remember the moment where you had to teach them selfishness, had to teach them how to lie? No, here's how you get the remote. You bite mommy on the arm and you, no, no, no. I mean, they're, they're fearfully and wonderfully made crooked little depraved wretched souls, are they not? <laughs> I have a beautiful little nine-year-old daughter named Reagan Capri at my house. I love her. She's awesome. She says she knows the Lord. We have yet to see the, uh, the, the fruit of that conversion, but we believe God will bring it to fruition. When she's about four years old, she wanted some chocolate before dinner. Baby, you can't have chocolate before dinner. You have to wait till after dinner. Okay, daddy, no problem. Two minutes later, I hear something rustling around in the pantry. I open the door. There's chocolate on the floor. There's chocolate in the face. And there's Reagan looking at me. Reagan, were you eating chocolate? No, sir, daddy. Baby, it's on your face. And she, you know what she says? It was JP. That's her older brother. You mean to tell me The JP came in here, ate the chocolate, smeared it on your face, and then ran out. You know what she said? I love you, Daddy. That's what she said. (laughs) Why? 
Because every single one of us by nature and nurture are wretched, wretched little sinners. Now here's the problem, here's the problem, especially if you grew up in church in the South, you will probably go, I agree, I agree, you're right. You know what, I need to do better, I need to try harder. I got this. And you see, I live near the beach, I live in Jacksonville Beach, Florida. And at our church, we call this beach ball theology. Because being a follower of Jesus is not just sin management, it's not. And so um, this, this, kind of, this kind of ideology that if I do better, then God will like me better is like trying to go out into the ocean and take hold of a beach ball or take hold of your sin and by your own effort, just keep it down under the waves so that nobody can see it. Just pure sin management. Good Christians, by the way, you know there's no such thing as a good Christian. The gospel is not to make bad better, it's to make death come to life. And a lot of times we think, I've got to grab hold of my sin and by my own power just hold it under the waves. And quite honestly, how, how long can you do that? Well, it depends on who you are. You know, some of you big tough guys, you, you can hold it under there for a while, but eventually what happens? You got sunscreen on your hand, the wave hits you, you lose focus. And when you let go of the beach ball, it never just lightly refloats back to the top, does it? It explodes in your face. And the gospel is not, God is good, you are bad, try harder, see you next week. The gospel says Jesus comes along with a pocket knife and pokes the beach ball and robs it of all of its power. You see, where I grew up, um, this is what we were taught. We didn't need 10 commandments, we only needed four. The commandments we grew up on were this. Good Christians don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls who do. That was it. If you did that, you were in. Now here's the problem, I'm from Dillon. So the prom queen was like, hey y'all, you understand what I'm saying? They were the best girls. So what Paul does here is he lays out the diagnosis. Then he keeps going in verse 19. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. In other words, you can't be good enough ever, ever, ever. And the reason that God gave us the gift of the law is he gives us this partly to reveal the character and nature of who he is. And, and, and we'll just reduce the law right now for conversation's sake to the 10 commandments. There's actually 613 laws in the Old Testament. And God gives us the law as both a map and a mirror. God gives us the Ten Commandments as a map to show us what it looks like to rightly live with a holy and righteous God. But the problem with the law is, is when you hold it up as a mirror, you realize, Houston, there's a problem. And the problem is me. The problem is I cannot pull this off, no matter how hard I try. I mean, I'm not even talking about uh, complex morality. We're talking about kindergarten-level morality, the Ten Commandments. If you try to take the Ten Commandments test, every single one of us will go 0 for 10. I mean, it's just true. The first commandment is that there's only one God. Have you, have you ever put God as anything other than first place in your life? The second one is have no idols. Have you ever treated anything temporary as if it was eternal? The third one is don't use the Lord's name in vain. Some of us won't make it out of the church parking lot today before we break this one. The fourth one, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Who even does that anymore? Except Chick-fil-A. And I get, don't you get aggravated with them? You're driving by, you're like, look, no line. And you pull in, you're like, Sabbath Christians, oh, legalists. Right? 
The fifth one is obey your father and mother. If you've ever been 2, 12, or 22, you know you've broken that one. The sixth one, thou shalt not murder. This is the one where we start feeling okay. <laughs> Pastor, I have never killed anyone in my life. And then Jesus comes along and the Sermon on the Mount jacks the whole thing up. He raises the bar. He says, if any of you have ever hated your brother in your heart, you know what this means? Let me translate this to 2019. If you've ever been in the fast lane behind somebody that doesn't know how to drive fast in the fast lane, and you hit your horn, you know what, let me translate your horn. Your horn went, murder, that's what it meant. The seventh one is thou shalt not commit adultery. Ask your parents what that means, that'll be fun over lunch, okay? And again, some of you are like, I've been faithful to my wife my whole life, and then Jesus, same sermon, raises the bar and says, if you've ever lusted, and you go, okay, what's the next one? Thou shalt not steal. Have you ever taken something that's not yours, including on the internet? The next one is thou shalt not lie. Like, Pastor, are you calling me a liar? Well, let me just ask this. This week, did you click a box that said, I have read and understand? <laughs> You're a liar. <laughs> Somebody in my church told me, no, 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 I, I'm not a liar. I just sometimes struggle with telling lies. It's not your only struggle, darling, okay? So, and then the 10th one is, thou shalt not covet. If you've ever watched HGTV, you didn't even know what shiplap was a couple years ago. We're like, we got to have this, all right? I'm just telling you. So how are you doing? Oh, for 10, every single one of us. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. That no one's good enough. And I know you think you're a good person. Compared to who? Your college roommate? Sure, you're doing great. The nightly news? No problem. To a holy and just God, Every single one of us are crooked and depraved. Now that is the diagnosis. And now here comes the good news, verse 21. But now, the righteousness. All throughout the book of Romans, when Paul uses the word righteousness, he does not mean right activity. That's what we think about when we think about righteousness. He's not talking about right activity. He's talking about right identity. That that righteousness in the gospel means that you have a right standing before God. Verse 21 says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. In other words, this whole book, the Bible, this whole thing is about one thing, and it ain't you. Listen, God is for you. Okay, anybody that dies for you is for you. Romans 5, 8 tells us that God demonstrates his love for us. So God is for you. It's just not about you. And this whole book is about one thing. It's about this manifested righteousness that would come on our behalf. You see, it starts this way, that in the beginning, God, one God in three persons, that God in and of himself, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, like we just sang about, that 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 out of God's love for God's self, it spills out into creation and he creates everything that is to display his glory and he says it's good. But he keeps going because God is more than good. And God wants to create image bearers. And the Bible says that God gathers together the dust of the ground. The, the word for dust in Hebrew is Adam. It's where we get the name Adam. He, he gathers together the dust of the ground and the Bible says that, that this this person is just a shell of a human being and not yet a living creature. And then Genesis tells us that God breathed the ruach of life into the nostrils of Adam. That Hebrew word ruach means breath or wind or spirit. 
And the Bible wants us to know this is not a Steph Curry three-pointer from the third heaven. This is nostril to nostril. And God breathes into Adam. And the very first human being comes alive and opens his eyes. And what does he see? He is in a face-to-face relationship with God. Church, that's what every single one of us were created for. This is why, this is why, even if you're crushing it and you've accomplished all your goals in this world and yet you don't know Jesus, that's why you lay down in your bed and something deep in here feels like it's still missing because it is. Because you and I were created to be in that face-to-face relationship with him. And then he puts Adam to sleep. He says, it's not good for man to be alone because he knows you leave a man alone long enough, he'll burn down the whole garden, gives him a wife so she can tell him what to do all the time. And then it goes, listen now, it goes super good for like a page in my Bible. (laughs) And then they sin. And essentially they sin. They reject God with both rebellion and religion and they say, forget you, God, we got this. And they ain't got this. And God chases them down in the cool of the day and he kicks them out of the garden to demonstrate his justice. Then he sheds the blood of an animal for the very first time for the covering of their sin to demonstrate his grace. And he says to the woman, I will put enmity between your offspring and this enemy, this serpent. And there will come a day where this serpent will bruise his heel, but he will crush his head. This is called the Proto-Evangelion. And then from that moment, that's Genesis chapter three, from that moment, that's what everything in the Old Testament is about. It's what the Passover is about. It's what the Day of Atonement's about. It's what all the prophets are talking about. It's what the major prophets like Isaiah, who would say, and by his stripes we are healed. It's what the minor prophets like Malachi were talking about when they said, there will come a day where the son of righteousness will show up with healing in his wings. And then you get to that one blank page in your Bible that represents the time between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And there's this crazy, hairy guy lives out in the woods, eats weird food named John the Baptist. Now, if you're new to church, it's not like there's Pete the Presbyterian and Mike the Methodist and John the Baptist. It just means he was dunking people in the water. And he was kind of weird guy, lived outside, had a big beard, yelled at people a lot. You can make a good living doing that these days. And so that's what he's doing. And all these people would show up to watch him preach. And he had a very short message. It was this, this, repent, repent, repent. I am getting you ready for the one who will come. And then one day his first cousin shows up on the scene, Jesus of Nazareth. And John the Baptist says, behold, pay attention. Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the entire world. Now this was very, very important because on the day of atonement, the high priest would stand before the nation of Israel. They would confess their sins. This is all Leviticus 16. I know you probably read it for your quiet time this morning. But in Leviticus 16, God sets up the day of atonement. The, The nation of Israel would confess their sins. The priest would transfer the sins of the people to the head of this goat. It was called a scapegoat. They'd take the goat to the edge of the city and cast this goat out as far as the east is from the west. And so people could tangibly, tactilely see the goat or their sin depart from them. This happened every year. And then the priest would take a perfect spotless lamb. He would go into the temple. And inside the temple, there was a room. And inside that room, there was a room. This room was called the Holy of Holies. It was separated by a curtain. It represented the very presence of God. And in there was a a box called the Ark of the Covenant. It held the law of God. And every year, the priest would shed the blood of the lamb and sprinkle it over the Ark of the Covenant. And it would cover over the sins of the Jewish people for one year. They did it year after year after year. And John the Baptist says, behold, 
There he is, the lamb, not another lamb, the lamb of God who's come to take away the sin of the entire world. Not another lamb of God that's gonna cover over the sin of the Jewish people for one year, but the lamb of God who's come to take away the sin of the entire world. And then Jesus gets baptized in the Jordan. The heavens open up. God the Father says, behold my son in whom I am well pleased. A dove, the spirit of God descends upon him. And then he goes out and begins to do his public ministry, making these outlandish claims like I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Then he goes to the cross. They nail him to that cross. And on that cross, Jesus says, it is finished. And the moment he says it is finished, that curtain that separated the presence of God from the people of God was torn from the top to the bottom. And anyone who would believe had direct access to what Adam was created for and experienced. That through the blood of the lamb that you and I can have a face-to-face relationship with him. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. Here is the gospel in one verse. The righteousness of God, a right standing with God through faith. This doesn't just mean you believe that, but you believe in. The Greek word is pastuo. It means that you believe, that you trust, that you commit your whole life into the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for all. And when the Bible says all, it means all. So I've got good news for you. If you fall in the all category, then Jesus died for you. Whether you're super rebellious, I've got good news that Jesus, what he did on the cross, counted for you and you could be saved. And if you grew up in church your whole life, I got good news, good news for you. You can be saved too. It's a lot harder, but you can be saved too. And he says, not only are your sins forgiven, but you are given the righteousness of Christ. This is called imputed righteousness. The Bible says this in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him who is without sin to be sin for us that we would be made the righteousness of God. Do you know that when God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of his son. There's a, couple of, there's a couple of accounts in the scriptures that explain in an incredible way what righteousness is. That God credits us with his son's perfect life. One is called the parable of the prodigal son. If you've been around Bible study for a while, you know this one. If you're new to it, you probably even heard it, all right? There's a dad, he's got two kids. The younger one comes to the dad and says, you're dead to me, just give me what's coming to me. And this is how you know it's a Jesus story. Because Jesus says the dad gives him his inheritance. I don't know how you grew up, but where I grew up, if I went to my daddy and said, Daddy, uh, you're dead to me. Why don't you give me what's coming to me? He'd say, I'm about to show you what's coming. That's how it would go at my house, all right? Now, I know some of you grew up in timeout, and that's your problem. But I don't have time. That's a different sermon. I know. I know. You're like, we don't spank Timmy. We can tell. But whatever. That's different. And so the kid goes out and wastes it all away, squandered it on wild living. He, he gets to like the bottom of the barrel. He's feeding pigs as an Orthodox Jewish boy. This means he is ceremonially unclean all the time and outside of fellowship. And the Bible says he comes to his senses. And when he comes home, the Bible says that, that the father, seeing his son who is a long way off, runs to him. By the way, in the first century, a man of this stature would not run. Because, you know, you've seen the Jesus movies. They were all in choir robes all the time. And you had to gird up your loins and show all that man thigh and go running. So grown men didn't run. 
which is, by the way, that's why I don't run. I'm just trying to be biblical. <laughs> if you ever see me running, call the police. Something has gone horribly wrong, okay? But this dad essentially humiliates himself, runs to the boy, falls down. The Bible says embraces him and begins to kiss him. The reason I think that he's hugging him is because any good servant would know that what this boy deserves is to be killed, to throw rocks at him until he's dead. And what the dad is doing is grabbing onto him so you can't tell where the boy ends and the dad begins. And if rocks are thrown, then the dad will take the punishment. And you remember what happens. He says, we're gonna throw a party for this boy. But before we do that, quick, go and get my robe. Go get the perfect spotless robe. And the servants bring him this robe and he takes the robe and he wraps it around the boy. This is a picture of imputed righteousness. So when anybody looks at the sun, they do not see the filth of the pigsty. They see the perfection of the robe of the father. Christian, when you put your faith in Jesus, it's not just that he forgives, forgives you of sin, but he also credits to you his righteousness, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who would believe or trust, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And again, all means all. Every single one of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You gotta understand a couple of words here to understand this verse. The first one is justified. Justified is a legal term. It is a moment in time. Here's what it simply means. It means that if you believe or trust that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, somehow that counted for you. Now the good news is about being a disciple is you don't have to fully understand to fully believe. See all the disciples. They doubted all kind of stuff. They had questions about all kind of stuff. I think this is why God called them to be his disciples because they were idiots. And it makes me feel better about my own discipleship. But the moment you believe, you trust that when Jesus died on the cross, somehow that counted for you, you are justified in the sight of God. That means that through the blood of Jesus, that when God looks at you, it's justified, never sinned before. And he says that we are justified by this grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. If you've ever redeemed a coupon at the grocery store, then you have participated in a picture of the gospel. I mean, think about how it works. Like you go out to the mailbox and you open it up and you're like, I got a coupon. I did not choose this coupon. This coupon has chosen me. What have I done to deserve this coupon? And you pull out the coupon and it says free ham. And you're like, this is awesome. And so you go to the grocery store and you pick up your ham and then you drop it on the little thing and they go, that'll be $40. And you're like, <laughs> maybe for the great unwashed, but I have a coupon. <laughs> and think about it. We even call it, to redeem a coupon. And what do you do? You hand them the coupon and they give you the ham. It costs you nothing, it costs the pig his life, but it costs the manufacturer of the ham full price. And you redeem the coupon and you receive something that is a grace gift to you. Now if you get saved at Publix or wherever you shop, you're welcome, okay? Every single time you have redeemed a coupon, this is what happens, that we have been purchased by the blood of Jesus. He keeps going in verse 25. It says, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. 
This word propitiation is very important, okay? Say propitiation. All right, you'll get better here in a second. Now, when I planted our church, church growth experts told me that um, millennials don't want to learn words like propitiation, so leave those out of the sermon. To which I thought, if you could order a venti caramel macchiato, you could probably understand what propitiation means. By the way, if you're a grown man drinking hot chocolate, stop. You understand? Drink it black like Jesus called us to. Anyway. So one more time, propitiation. Well, no, you got to do better than that. Propitiation. propitiation. Good, good. So when your friends are like, what did y'all study in church today? You'd be like, I don't know. You say propitiation. And they'll be like, oh, that guy's smart. Propitiation means a payment that satisfies. That's what it means. A payment that satisfies. That when Jesus Christ died on the cross, that the full wrath of God, the full judgment of sin was poured out upon him. Because God is just, all sin must be paid for. And for if God were to overlook sin, he would be an unjust God. You see, I've had people ask me before, why can't God just forgive all sin? Like, why did Jesus have to die for our sin? You understand that, that, that when we figure out the punishment for a crime, it's not just what you do, but who you do it against. You know that's true, right? So, like, if you go home today and you get mad and you kick the bed, that's not good. You probably shouldn't do that. If you kick a dog, that's worse. If you kick a cat, it's not even a sin. Everybody agrees with that. <laughs> you kick your wife, you kick the police, you go into jail. Every, every single time we sin, we don't just sin against ourselves or sin against one another. We sin against an almighty, everlasting God. And when you commit treason against the most high king, it requires an everlasting punishment. And for God, if God were to overlook our sin, he would be an unjust God. So at the cross, he, pulls, he pours out the full wrath and judgment upon his son. And Jesus is the propitiation for our sin, the payment that satisfies. Let me tell you why this matters to you, a theological term like that. Let me tell you why this matters to you right now. Because if Jesus is the payment that satisfies and you are in Christ, then God cannot be dissatisfied in you. A.W. Tozer says, the most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. And oftentimes we think that God is not super stoked about us right now. We think God kind of lives with this frustration with us. He'll love a future version of us once we get our act together. But right now we think he's going, Ugh. But if Jesus is the payment that satisfies, he cannot be dissatisfied in you. You see, to be dissatisfied in somebody means that you have been surprised. You, ex you expected one thing and you experienced something else. And in that gap is dissatisfaction. You see, let me tell you what has never happened in all eternity. God has never popped up in heaven and going, what in the name of me are they up to now? That has never happened once. God ran the Carfax on you and your life. He got the full Carfax back and it said, busted up, leaks oil, broken lemon. And he said, perfect, I'll pay full price. He knows what he's getting when he gets us and he chose to love us and adopt us anyway. You see, I think sometimes we think this way because if you have kids, you know how you look at your kids or all of us had parents look at us like, are you serious? My son, JP, plays a ton of baseball. A couple years ago, we were getting ready for this tournament. And I'm like, dude, you gotta be ready to go in 10 minutes. So go to your room and I need you ready from cleats to hat. Do you understand? Yes, sir. And I coach this team. So I go to my room, I get ready. I open the door 10 minutes later and there he is. 
He's got one sock, jock strap, jock strap, jersey, hat, Xbox controller playing Fortnite. And I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, he's a teenager, so he's like, what? That's all he can say, what, 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 right? And I think that's how we think God looks at us. That God has given us this great commission, therefore go and make disciples of the entire world. And then he opens the door to the bedroom and there we are, one sock, Xbox controller, jock strap, what? And yet the reality is, is that our heavenly father delights in his children because Jesus was the payment that satisfies. God could never be dissatisfied in us. And then this is how he closes. This was to show God's righteousness. The this here is that Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected. This was to show God's righteousness. Because of his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In other words, because God is just, all sin must be paid for. Because God is merciful, he delayed the payment. And because of God's grace, he made the payment on our behalf. Years ago, Um, Gretchen and I had two dogs. Now, we're Georgia Bulldog fans, all right? And we wanted to get English Bulldogs, but they are proud of those puppies, all right? So we couldn't afford that. I was a youth pastor, so we got... uh, we got boxers, kind of a poor man's bulldog. And the reason I'm a Georgia fan is because when I read my Bible, I just see red and black, but that's just me. Anyway, so we get these two boxers and we love them. The male was named Samson, the female was named Sadie, and we were dog people. I mean, we were those people that like got presents for our dogs and they slept in our bed. And all of our people at church said, when you have kids, then your dogs will be dogs and your kids will be your kids. And we were like, not us, we'll love them forever. Then we had kids and we shipped them out to the backyard. You know how that goes. So when we moved them out to the backyard, we put a fence around our backyard. And the reason is because we love our dogs. That fence was provision and protection. Because on the other side of that fence was a busy, busy road and we did not want our dogs to get into that road and get killed. So we built this fence to protect them and to provide for them. And the reason we did it is because we love them. And yet the dogs always saw the fence as punishment. And one day we had this, uh, this girl at our church and she would watch our kids in the morning. And one day I get a phone call from her and she says, I've been here all morning and I have not seen the dogs anywhere. And I thought, oh, they got out of the fence. So I got in my truck, came back to the house, went to the backyard, and sure enough, there, the, one of the doors was cracked open. And I'm sure it was my fault. I'm sure I left it cracked open. And I know what happened. I know that Sadie, the female, that she walked up to it, and she was like, Samson, here's our chance. I mean, the, the door is cracked open, and if you'll follow me, this is gonna be awesome. We can do whatever we want. And then Samson, I'm convinced, was like, no, 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 Sadie, you don't understand. This fence is because the master loves us, and it's provision and protection, and this is, this is for our own good. And she said, whatever, and she went running out, and like we all do, he went chasing. <laughs> now, here's the thing. Anytime we rebel against the master, it always feels like fun and freedom at first. I'm sure as they went running around the neighborhood, they were like, this is awesome. We can go wherever we wanna go. We can chase a cat. We, we don't have, nobody's gonna pick up anything. I'm sure Samson painted his face blue and said, freedom! <laughs> and again, rebellion always feels like freedom, but it can only lead to death and bondage. And so I'm in my neighborhood doing what everybody that's ever lost a pet is doing. I'm riding around in my truck, got my windows down, a piece of cheese hanging out, going, Sadie, Samson! 
Then your neighbors come up and ask dumb questions. Hey, did you lose your dog? <laughs> no, nah, my grandparents got out, but they love to come down some cheese every once in a while. Of course I lost my dog. This is why Jesus says, love your neighbors, because they're idiots. But anyway. <clears throat> so I go around the front of my neighborhood, and I bump into somebody, and they say, oh, yeah, earlier, a couple of hours ago, we saw them come out of the neighborhood and hang a left towards the busy road. And it went from anger to empathy. I thought, oh, no. I hope I don't find them out on the road and have to lie to my kids, be like, they went to a happy place, right? And so as I'm going out to the main road, I get a phone call. My wife calls me. She says, I found them. I'm like, what? Where are they? She says, they're on the internet. What? Did they start like a GoFundMe page? What are they doing? (laughs) Well, turns out somebody found them, scooped them up, and took them to the pound in downtown Jacksonville. So I called them up, and sure enough, the pound puts the pictures on the internet for people like me to find their dogs. So I call them, and again, I live out at Jack's Beach, like where Jesus lives. I rarely go downtown, and when I do, it's never good. I'm a Jack's fan. My trip's downtown, not awesome. You know what I'm saying. So I drive downtown, there's this huge facility, and I walk in the room, and there's this lady there, and in a few minutes, it was understandable why she worked at the pound, because she didn't have what we would call people skills, okay? And so... I'm just explaining to her, hey, I lost my dogs. And dude, she is treating me like I am evil incarnate. She's like, how dare you? Because we didn't have like collars or name, none of that. It was just our dogs. And, and she was like, all right. Well, um, I was like, all right, so what do I do? She said, you have to identify them. And then it'll be $300 a piece to get them back. That's what I thought. I thought, I didn't know boxers appreciated over time. That's incredible. I didn't pay that much with it. I didn't know it was an investment concept, all right? So I thought, oh, man, okay. And so she takes me to the back where the kennels are. And I go walking in, and it's like death row. There's just these little jail cells, and all these dogs are like, pick me, pick me. And I get to the last one, and there, there are my dogs. And the Samson, the male, he, as soon as he saw me, he walked to the back. He spun around twice. He tucked his nub. He sat down. He was like, my bad, dog. <laughs> Sadie, the female, she had no idea. She was just wiggling. She was like, hey, where have you been? We have been looking for you everywhere. Just get, 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 get. Now, in that moment, what my dogs had done is that they had incurred a debt that they could never pay back. And they had found themselves locked up in a situation that they cannot get themselves out of. And even if I were to say to them then, hey, listen, I'm going to front you the $600, but you owe me. You better pay it back. You better race a greyhound or save Timmy from a well, or you better do something, okay? (laughs) And even if my dogs from that day forward said, we're going to be perfect. We're going to teach your kids algebra. We'll get you slippers and bring the paper. Even if from that day forward, they never messed up again, that would do nothing to pay off the debt that they had already incurred. And so I went around back to the place and I said, hey, uh, ma'am, so what if I don't have $600? I mean, that's a lot of money. What if, what if I just can't come up with it? What do I do? And she says, well, you, you turn them over to us and we'll bathe them and clip them and clean them up and then we'll try to adopt them out. And so I stepped back to think about it. I looked over to the door that I walked in and I saw a huge poster that said, adopt a dog today for $30. Huh. So I said, okay, um, I'm gonna relinquish ownership of my dogs. And she was like, are you serious? I'm like, yeah, I'm serious. And so she gives me these pieces of papers and I sign them and she notarizes them and says, all right, have a good day. And I take my papers. I take a few steps through the door, come back. I would like to adopt two dogs, please. (laughs) And she says, you can't adopt your own dog. I go, that's funny. I have a notarized piece of paper here. The governor of Florida says, I don't have any dogs. You have dogs, I got no dogs, two. 
a male and a female in a brown. We've already picked out names. We're going with Sadie and Samson, all right? So she scoops up her paper. She walks behind this little wall, but had a little glass thing in it. I could see her talking to the boss, and she's like, and he's like, I don't know. And then he comes back, and I had found a loophole, and I filled out an adoption application about what great dog owners we would be. And with that application and $60, I legally redeemed and adopted my dogs back into my family. Amen? And that is the gospel. Every single one of us have rebelled and rejected the provision and protection of our master because we've, we fundamentally thought, I got this. And listen, bro, you ain't got this. And rebellion, though it feels like fun and freedom at first, it can only lead to bondage or death. And God sent his son Jesus to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And there was no discount and there was no loophole. Jesus paid it all. And at the cross of Jesus Christ, when he says it is finished, what that means is for you, your sin debt has been paid. What that means is that you don't have to pretend anymore because he knows who you are when he chose you. What that means is the performance is over because you're not saved by works. You are, you're saved by his work on the cross and not your own. And this is true for anyone who would believe, anyone who would believe. And again, that word here, believe, the Greek word is pastuo. It doesn't just mean believe that. It means to believe in. When I was a little kid growing up in Dillon, my dad was gonna teach me to swim. We didn't do lessons. We just went to the public pool and he said, get on the diving board. I'll get in the pool. And so I get on the diving board and I walk out and there's my dad in the deep end going, come on, buddy, jump. Just jump into my arms. And I am standing at the end of the diving board. And I think, I'm not doing this. And meanwhile, a line of very non-encouraging humans has formed behind me. And in that very moment, at the edge of the diving board, I see my dad and I believe that he's my dad. I recognize him. He's got the sweet Magnum PI mustache, the cool parted hair. He lives at my house. Said hey to my mom. She's sitting over there covered in baby oil, drinking a tab. These are my people. But standing on the diving board, I had not done what the Bible talks about when it says to believe in Jesus. I'm afraid all over, especially the Southeast and really good churches like this one, there are people that believe that Jesus is who he says he is. You've just never put your faith in him. You've never put your trust in him. You've never stepped off of that diving board. You see, for me to put my faith in my dad, to pastuo in my dad, it means that I'm not gonna hold me up anymore. I'm gonna step off of this diving board and trust that he is who he says he is and that he will keep his promise. That when I step off of this diving board and into his arms, that he will hold me up. This is what it means to put your faith in Jesus Christ. And so for me, I did it a long time ago at that little camp outside of Dillon, South Carolina. And today, I know you guys are in a season of prayer. Can I tell you the one prayer that God answers 100% of the time? The prayer when somebody says, Jesus, save me. Jesus, I wanna surrender my life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Every single time that prayer is prayed, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so maybe that's you. No matter what campus you're going to, no matter how long you've been attending church, no matter what you've done and who you have done it with, 
that a righteousness has been manifested apart from your own behavior and that anyone who puts their faith in Jesus will be saved.